G'day everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Road Less Travel Podcast. Nikki Shea back in the seat with you this week and again, thanks very much for your support. Don't forget to, you can interact with the show at any time. Drop us an email which is fatcat at iinet.net.au and also follow us on Instagram and Facebook as well and we will be updating our YouTube page not too far away. Check out what's happening too on our website which is fatcatmedia.com.au Thanks so much too for the team down there at Morty Alex to Artie Stevens and the team who listen to us each week down there on the community radio. It's Radio Bayside, <clears throat> excuse me, the soundtrack of our lives. They've got a website too, which is radiobayside.com. And if you want to find them, it's 89.0 FM on the tune. You can listen through uh, Radio Garden and other apps as well. So a big thanks to the team down there. There's a local radio station in Mordialic here in Victoria, and uh, they obviously look after that particular area. And if you'd like to stream our show, our podcast, onto your local community radio station, no problem, just drop us a line, email us, or you can SMS through, or give me a phone call on 042-752-8467. Happy to talk to anyone. Don't forget, too, you can support the show via our Patreon as well. Those details are up on our website and also on our Facebook page, too. This week, I thought we'd do something a little bit different, um, more than sort of the road less travelled. Well, it does encapsulate the road less travelled in the fact of Australian convict sites and that got me thinking on a recent trip that we did around New South Wales and a lot of the areas that we visited were um, started well not started but heavily impacted by convict labour so it got me thinking and doing a bit of research about some of the convict sites that you can visit around Australia and in particular what I didn't realise is that some of these sites now have been actually added to the World Heritage List and back in 2010 there was a group of 11 historic places scattered across Australia which were in fact inscribed on the World Heritage List. Now this was the first time that sites connected to penal transportation have been included and I didn't know that. Now these sites uh, in Australia's convict history, they place the convict history within the broader story of I guess European expansion along with the forced migration of labour in the late 18th century. Now, talk of Australia's convict beginnings was once a taboo. It was a source of embarrassment, but now it's treated with pride, especially if you've got a family member where you can trace your convict roots. Along with the social and cultural legacy, I guess Australians have really come to value the objects and architectural remains that record and recall our convict past. The once neglected ruins and relics have become now a must-see attraction. So the World Heritage List, what's it all about? Well, UNESCO World Heritage List includes places with international importance and works to protect and promote the, I guess what we call the outstanding universal values identified in each case. The Australian convict sites now on the list highlight Australia's convict beginnings and also illustrates the changing attitudes towards crime, punishment and the treatment of prisoners throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. As a group, they reveal the broad range of the institutions, the structures and the systems experienced by our convicts in Australia between 1788 and 1868. And it got me thinking, what are some of these sites? Let's have a look at them. So Norfolk Island, and that's a place that I really would like to visit. There, there's the Kingston and Arthur's Vale Convict Stations, known as Hallish Prison Outposts, established in two phases on Norfolk Island between 1788 and 1855. The first is a failed agricultural experiment to aid the mainland colony and to also fend off rival maritime interests. The second is a ruthless banishment for really hardened or reoffending convicts. 
The convict barracks are located at Kingston on Norfolk Island. So we'll head now, as we've been to Norfolk Island, we'll head now to New South Wales and the old government house and the government domain in Parramatta. Successive colonial governors occupied this convict-built country house which overlooks the town of Parramatta between 1790 and 1856 with its extensive gardens and farming lands managed by a large convict workforce. Then if you're in Sydney itself, you can go and visit the Hyde Park Barracks. Its refined architectural edifice was built in 1819 to house male convict workers of Sydney who laboured under a strict, although productive, gang system. Evolving throughout 1830s to a feared and brutal administrative hub with convict courts and accommodation for convicts awaiting reassignment. It was wound down during the 1840s and converted for free immigrant lodgings after 1848. You can now head over to the old Great North Road, Wiseman's Ferry, convict-built retaining wall and a drainage channel along the old Great North Road in the Upper Hawkesbury, which is north of Sydney. Gangs of convicts, mainly chained under secondary sentences, laboured in really harsh, isolated conditions between 1826 and 1832 to construct a stone buttress road of astonishing quality heading north through craggy upper Hawkesbury bushland, connecting colonial Sydney to the newly opened Hunter Valley farming lands. In Sydney Harbour itself, you may have seen Cockatoo Island convict site. Now, there's a pair of convicts that have been pitched, and I'll put it up on our Facebook name, our Facebook page, these two were known as canary birds because of their colourful, though degrading, punishment clothes of yellow. At work writing letters on Cockatoo Island, Sydney, is drawn by Philip de Viggers in 1849. I'll put that up on our Facebook page. Cockatoo Island was infamous island prison established in Sydney Harbour from 1839 to 1869, and it was done there for reoffending convicts and harding criminals who worked under brutal conditions to construct the prison quarters, a dry duck, underground silos, and a notorious underground punishment hole. So from New South Wales we nip across, well we don't nip, but we head over to Fremantle in Western Australia and in particular Fremantle Prison. And by the early 1850s the West Australian colony needed an injection of cheap controllable labour to revive its ailing economy. Male convicts completed the massive limestone prison in 1852 along modified panatopian principles which highlights the separation, surveillance and control reminiscent of Pentonville in Britain. Within a wide array of structures, including water and guardhouses, workshop, a hospital and chapel, are extensive traces of illicit artwork and graffiti visible in numerous cells that were finally decommissioned in 1991. That is certainly a place worth visiting. Speaking of convicts, well, I guess in Australia we notice, of course, that Tasmania has a massive um, undertaking of convict history. In particular, it's the Port Arthur historic, historic site on the Tasman Peninsula. A notorious penal station made up of more than 30 convict-built structures and substantial ruins located in evocative, largely uncleared bushland on the end of the Tasman Peninsula, functioning between 1833 and 1877 as both a large, self-sufficient industrial complex and also a hotbed for trialling successive penal philosophies, including systems of isolation, classification, the separations of boys, hard and skilled labour and psychological terror. Port Arthur was the largest convict manufactory in Van Diemen's Land, producing ironwork, bronze castings, leatherwork, ceramics, bricks, small boats and ships for the colonial government. 
The coal mine's historic site on also the Tasman Peninsula was opened in 1833. This remote convict colliery on the Tasman Peninsula where re-offending convicts from Port Arthur and elsewhere, they faced extreme physical brutality and they became part of the government's probation system in the early 1840s. Substantial and elaborate ruins include a complex of punishment cells, separate apartments, barracks, workshop, boarded lodgings and chapel. Of the 25,000 women transported to Australia, around half of them were sent to Van Diemen's Land and the Cascades female factory is located in Hobart. Most time spent in the grim, isolated and overcrowded Cascades factory situated in a cold, swampy valley upstream from Hobart. Only stone-enclosed yards of the original establishment remain where, between 1828 and 1856, convict women were confined, punished or sheltered to give birth, recover from sickness or undertake work. Near Longford is the Brickenden and Woolmers Estates. Six generations of a single family owned these neighbouring estates that were developed and farmed in by large workforce of assigned convicts from 1820. The northern Tasmanian homesteads contain a really vast complex of convict-built structures, many in working condition, that record the living and working lives of male and female convicts before the 1850s. And then at Maria Island, there's the Darlington Probation Station. This Maria Island convict station on Tasmania's east coast operated between 1825 and 1832, and it was to banish and punish secondary offenders and runaways. Darlington reopened as a probation station in 1842 with prisoners classified by crime and conduct producing cloth, shoes and timberworks signalling the arrival of a new experiment in convict management and reform that continued to 1850. Now each of the 11 convict sites in the World Heritage List has a fascinating and really complex history. Tales of transported criminals swept into servitude in really cool, cruel and distant places are told against the backdrop of stirring architecture, these brutal institutions and of course landscape. Linked together they tell I guess a really epic human story about the mass movement of unwilling labour across the globe and the underpinning role of convict society and culture in colonial expansion. Now, the transportation of convicts around the world in the late 18th century was part of uh, a common push by the European nations to set up colonial outposts and military strongholds in far-flung regions. Now, Britain, however, had a different plan for its Australian territories. This was the only attempt to grow a new society from a penal colony. It was also the longest and most diverse scheme in operation, which involved the largest amount of transported convicts scattered across the widest expanse of land. Australia's eight decades of convict transportation occurred during a time of really heated public debate on crime and punishment. And convict systems in Australia were not only influenced by changing ideas, but also in many cases they really helped crystallise radical approaches to prison design, also to prisoner reform, and also enlightened theories on criminal behaviour. When we come back, we'll talk more about the convicts in Australia. We'll take a break. We're back with more in just a moment. You're listening to the Road Less Travelled podcast. In the six months since we started our little podcast, The Road Less Travelled, broadcast each week, we have achieved some great results. Our top episode thus far has been the Lakola, Dargo, Jamison, Woods Point and the Wanangatta Murders. This was the most popular episode of The Road Less Travelled in 2021. It was published on July 13 and has been downloaded 67 times. Our top city in 2021 episodes of The Road Less Travelled were downloaded 153 times by people in Sydney, New South Wales. That makes Sydney, New South, the top city for The Road Less Travelled. Thanks, Sydney. 
The top listening apps in 2021, the most popular way to listen to The Road Less Travelled was Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. In 2021, we put together 30 episodes, published 14 hours of new content across those 30 episodes. That's 862 minutes or 51,720 seconds to be more precise. Our first season, the Rose Less Travelled episodes were downloaded 746 times, thanks to you, our loyal listeners. So from me, your host, Nikki Shea, I say a warm thank you, and I look forward to continuing that success with Season 2. Thanks so much for your support, and don't forget to keep following us on social media. Welcome back to the show. Don't forget too, if you've got upcoming trips that you've got planned, maybe you've just done a trip, drop me a line, fatcat at ionet.net.au. Love to get your feedback and love to get your stories of maybe you found something that needs to be broadcast. You say, hey, Nikki, I've got an idea uh, for a show. Drop me a line. Hey, I've got someone you need to interview. Drop me a line. More than happy to talk to anyone. 042 The show is all about what you would like to make. It's not all about me sitting here rabbiting on about some adventures. We'd like to get your input into things as well so it's only as good as the information that uh, is provided I hope that it's been pretty good from my standpoint but uh, would love to grab your interaction back to convicts 166,000 convicts so transportation or a sentence of banishment across the seas had been used to punish Britishers, Britishers, British criminals for centuries its victims were petty thieves military prisoners vagabonds uh, anarchists and political rebels Before 1775, Britain sent convicts to its American and West Indian colonies. However, loss in the Revolutionary Wars meant that other destinations were urgently needed. As a short-term measure, retired warships turned into floating prisons called hulks, moored close to the shore, which helped reduce crowding in local lock-ups and country jails. The Hulk inmates could perform useful public works, but what the government really wanted was a fearsome and faraway place, strategically sided with commercial promise. In January 1787, a plan was announced in British Parliament to send convicts to the newly claimed territory of New South Wales. So, on this Australia Day, exactly a year later, a fleet of 11 ships carrying convicts, crews, soldiers and marines sailed into Port Jackson, dropping anchor at Sydney Cove. Over the next eight decades, more than 840 ships brought around 166,000 transported convicts to Australia. They came mostly from England and Ireland, although also from India, Canada, China, New Zealand and the Caribbean. Most were unmarried unmarried, unmarried working class men and around 12% were women whose presence, while minor, was also crucial to the success of the colony. The convict transportation, slavery and indentured labour were three equally brutal and oppressive systems used for sweeping large numbers of captive workers away from home, usually across the seas. In each case, a combination of discipline, terror, punishment and rewards made sure that unwilling workers were obedient and productive. All three systems brought unspeakable misery and suffering to millions of lives. Now, unlike slavery or indentured labour, penal transportation was intended to rid a population of its criminals and develop colonial outposts. While uncertain and unfair, the combined um, aims of criminal uh, crime control and criminal control and also colony building gave transported convicts a future. For convicts sent here to Australia, there was a glimmer of hope in this hell. Having endured their sentence and served their time, convicts in Australia were given the unusual opportunity of re-entering the society they helped establish, hopefully free of stigma. 
In the process, cultures, attitudes and traditions transported along with convicts filtered into Australian life. Yet, as I mentioned earlier, it's only in recent years that Australia has come to terms with its convict origin, origins. rather, The once carefully hidden history that bred a peculiar need for international approval has now been openly explored. The World Heritage Listing of Australian Convict Sites aims to further unchain the convict's past. In New South Wales, following the charts of Captain Cook, a fleet of 11 British ships carrying convicts, settlers and soldiers started a penal colony at Sydney Cove in 1788. The ill-prepared outpost struggled for several years until farms succeeded at Parramatta and Norfolk Island and supply ships arrived more often. From the beginning, the fate of the convicts rested on their skills rather than their crime. Until late 1810s, convict carpenters, brickmakers, nurses, servants, stockmen, shepherds and farmers worked mostly under government direction on public works and agriculture. Ex-convicts were socially accepted too. As the colonial population increased throughout the 1820s and the 1830s, discipline was toughened and convicts were isolated from view. Private assignments on distant country estates was the common experience of convicts as settlements spread across the mountains and along the coast. Fewer convicts remained in the towns. The troublesome convicts had their sentences extended or built outback roads in chain gangs. The most feared secondary punishment was banishment to stations like Port Arthur, Moreton Bay, which is Brisbane, or the reoccupied Norfolk Island. By 1840, when transportation to New South Wales ended, around 80,000 convicts had served time in the colony. Many were still under sentence, with places like Cockatoo Island operating as convict institutions for decades to come. To Tasmania and Van Diemen's Land. The British settlement on Van Diemen's Land, Tassie, began in 1803 at Risdon Cove on the Derwent River. During the first decade, a small population of convicts, soldiers and settlers farmed, cut timber, dug coal and hunted for seal skins and oil. By, the 18, by 1820, convicts made up 70%, that's 70% of the population of, Ta- of Tasmania, with transportees arriving directly from England. As in New South Wales, convicts worked initially under minimal restraint, constructing buildings, roads and bridges under government direction. Female convicts mostly worked as domestic servants. Factories were established for unhirable or pregnant women. By the 1820s, the favoured system of employing convicts was under private assignment, mostly on larger estates, and a network of notorious outstations and settlements like Sarah Island, Maria Island and Port Arthur operated to terrorise secondary offenders. A few convicts were retained in town for government works and useful trades. After 1840, changing ideas on the treatment of prisoners saw new penal systems and institutions evolve. Instead of private assignment, new arrivals were placed in highly regimented probation stations scattered across the island. Strict routines of work, religious learning and segregation were based on progressive ideas trialled in the British penitentiaries. The limited success of probation stations across Van Diemen's Land led to the abolishment of transportation in 1853. Over in Western Australia in 1826, convicts accompanied a small military mission from New South Wales to King George Sound in Albany to create a colonial outpost. The Swan River Settlement or present-day Fremantle was declared in 1829. Now, for 20 years, the poverty-stricken colony faced dismal development with chronic labour shortages and struggled to attract enterprising settlers. Requests throughout the 1840s for a supply of convict labour coincided with the ending of transportation to the eastern colonies. The first shipload of convicts for Fremantle happily received in 1850, and within the next two decades, 10,000 transportees arrived in the colony. 
Among these were a small number of convicts and keepers diverted in 1862 from the recently closed establishment on Bermuda. So Fremantle Prison housed gangs of convict workers who laboured on public infrastructure projects like the local jetties, roads, bridges and buildings. Convicts were also assigned to free settlers involved in agricultural and mining works. The final shipment of convicts to WA in 1868 marked the end of transportation to Australia. The convict system continued to operate until 1886 when British Britain rather formally handed control of prisons to the colonial government. Transported convicts continued to serve out sentences at Fremantle Prison until 1906. Now, Norfolk Island, it's got a good little history about it, a pretty little place I'd really like to visit, as I said. There was a detachment of about 20 convicts and settlers that pitched camp on deserted Norfolk Island in early 1788. Britain was worried about French naval interests and hoped that the island could supply food for the starving mainland colony, along with raw materials for ship rigging, spars and masts. Now, plagues of caterpillars, the failure of flax and timber and the difficulty of landing supplies, it spelt disaster for the agricultural settlement from the start. The convict population fell after 1804 when Van Diemen's Land became a more convenient destination. Some stayed on as settlers until the colony was abandoned in 1813. Now, Norfolk Island reopened in 1825 as a dreaded island prison for incorrigible convicts. According to Governor Ralph Darling in 1826, to deter others from the commission of crime, prisoners on Norfolk Island were to face the extremist punishment short of death. Poor food, scarce rations, incessant floggings, backbreaking labour and ruthless overseers made prison life unbearable. A brief experiment in penal reform in 1840 under the enlightened commandant of Alexander Mac- I think it's McConchie, yes, McConchie, he drew widespread criticism and after 1844 the settlement was returned to its previous harsh regime. The prison complex was closed in 1855 following the end of transportation to Van Diemen's Land a few years earlier. The Road Less Travelled podcast is a proudly Australian, fiercely independent podcast hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travel podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the Road Less Travel podcast. And as this episode goes to air, it's Australia Day in Australia. Observed annually on the 26th of January, it marks the 1788 landing of the First Fleet at Sydney Cove and raising of the Union flag by Arthur Phillip following days of exploration of Port Jackson in New South Wales. Now in present-day Australia, celebrations aim to reflect the diverse society and the landscape of the nation and are marked by various community and family events, reflections on Australian history, official community awards and citizenship ceremonies welcoming new members of the Australian community. Now the meaning and significance of Australia Day has evolved and been contested over time and not all states have celebrated the same date as their date of historical significance. Unofficially or historically, the date has also been variously named Anniversary Day, Foundation Day, A&A Day and Invasion Day. The date of 26 January 1788 marked the proclamation of British sovereignty over the eastern seaboard of Australia, then known as New Holland. Although it was not known as Australia Day until over a century later, records of celebrations on the 26th of January date back to 1808 when the first official celebration of the formation of New South Wales held in 1818. 
On New Year's Day 1901, the British colonies of Australia formed a federation, marking the birth of modern Australia. A National Day of Unity and Celebration was looked for. Now, it wasn't until 1935 that all Australian states and territories adopted the term Australia Day to mark the date, and not until 1994 that the date was consistently marked by a public holiday on that day by all states and territories. In contemporary Australia, the holiday is marked by the presentation of the Australian of the Year Awards on Australia Day Eve, the announcement of the Australia Day Honours List and the addresses from the Governor-General and Prime Minister. It is an official public holiday in every state and territory. With community festivals, concerts and citizenship ceremonies, the day is celebrated in large and small communities and cities around the nation. Australia Day has become the biggest annual civic event in Australia. Indigenous Australian events are now included. However, since at least 1938, the date of Australia Day has been marked by some Indigenous Australians and supporters mourning what is seen as the invasion of the land by the British and the start of colonialisation, protesting its celebration as a national holiday. 26th of January is also referred to as Invasion Day, Survival Day or Day of Mourning and observed as a counter-observance with calls for the date to be changed or the holiday to be abolished entirely. However, support for changing the date has remained in a minority position. On the 13th of May 1787, a fleet of 11 ships, which came to be known as the First Fleet, was sent by the British Admiralty from England to New Holland under the command of Naval Captain Arthur Phillip. The fleet sought to establish a penal colony at Botany Bay on the coast of New South Wales, which had been explored and claimed by Lieutenant James Cook in 1770. The settlement was seen as necessary because of the loss of the 13 colonies in North America. The fleet arrived between the 18th and 20th of January 1788, but it was immediately apparent that Botany Bay was going to be unsuitable. So on the 21st of January, Philip and a few officers travelled to Port Jackson, 12 kilometres to the north, to see if it would be better location for settlement. They stayed there until the 23rd of January. Philip named the site of their landing Sydney Cove, after the Home Secretary Thomas Townsend, the first Viscount Sydney. They also made contact with the local Aboriginal people. They returned to Botany Bay on the evening on the 23rd of January when Philip gave orders to move the fleet to Sydney Cove the next morning on the 24th of Jan. That day there was a huge gale blowing, making it impossible to leave Botany Bay, so they decided to wait till the next day, the 25th. However, the night of the 24th, they spotted ships Astrolab and, I think it's Busolo, flying the French flag at the entrance to Botany Bay. They were having as much trouble getting into the bay as the first fleet was having getting out. So on the 25th of January, the gale still blowing, the fleet tried to leave Botany Bay, but only HMS Supply made it out, carrying Arthur Phillip. Some also carried uh, Philip Gidley King, some Marines and about 40 convicts. Now, they anchored in Sydney Cove in the afternoon. Meanwhile, back at Botany Bay, Captain John Hunter of HMS Sirius made contact with the French ships and he had the commander, Captain de Clonard, exchange greetings. Clonard informed Hunter that the fleet commander was Jean-Francois de Gallup. Um, Sirius successfully cleared Botany Bay, but the other ships were left in great difficulty. The Charlotte was blown dangerously close to the rocks. The Friendship and the Prince of Wales became entangled, both ships losing booms and sails. Charlotte and the Friendship actually collided, and Lady, I think it's Penryn, nearly ran aground. Despite these difficulties, all the remaining ships finally managed to clear Botany Bay and sail to Sydney Cove on the 26th of January. The last ship anchored there around 3pm. So it was on the 26th of January that a landing was made at Sydney Cove and clearing of the ground for an encampment immediately began. Then, according to Captain Phillips' account, 
He says, In the evening of the 26th, the colours were displayed on shore, and the governor, with several of his principal officers and others, assembled around the flagstaff, drank the king's health and success to the settlement with all that display of form which on such occasions esteemed proprietors because it enlivens the spirits and fills the imagination with pleasing presages. The formal establishment of the, colo- of the colony of New South Wales did not, however, occur on the 26th of January, which is commonly assumed. It did not occur until 7th of February 1788, when the formal proclamation of the colony and of Arthur Phillips' governorship were read out. The vesting of all land in the reigning monarch King George III also dates from the 7th of February 1788. Now, in the first 50 years from 1788 to 1838, there was no official recognition of the colony's anniversary, with the New South Wales Almanacs of 1806 and 1808 placing no special significance on the 26th of January. By 1808, the date was being used as the colony's immigrants, especially the convicts, to celebrate their love of the land they lived in with drinking and merriment. The 1808 celebrations followed this pattern beginning at, the su- at, beginning at sunset on the 25th of January and lasting into the night, the chief toast of the occasion being Major George Johnson. Johnson had the honour of being the first officer ashore from the First Fleet, having been carried from the landing boat to the back of, on the back of convict James Ruse. Despite suffering the ill effects of a fall from his gig on the way home to Annandale, Johnson led the officers of the New South Wales Corps in arresting Governor William Bly on the following day, 26 January 1808, in what became known as the Rum Rebellion. Now, the first landing day or foundation day was starting to be mentioned and successful immigrants starting hold, started to hold anniversary dinners. In 1817, the local newspaper reported one of these unofficial gatherings at the home of Isaac Nichols. In 1818, the 30th anniversary of the founding of the colony, Governor Lachlan Macquarie chose to acknowledge the day with the first official celebration. He declared that the day would be a holiday for all government workers, granting each an extra allowance of one pound of fresh meat and ordered a 30-gun salute at Dawes Point, one for each year that the colony had existed. This began a tradition that was retained by the governors that were followed. Foundation Day, as it was known at the time, continued to be officially celebrated in New South Wales and in doing so became connected with sporting events. One of these became a tradition that is still continued today. In 1837, the first running of what would become Australia Day Regatta was held on Sydney Harbour. Five races were held for different classes of boats, from first-class sailing vessels to waterman skips. The following year, the 50th anniversary of the founding of the colony and as part of the celebrations, Australia's first public holiday was declared. The regatta was held for a second time and people crowded the foreshores to view the events or join the five steamers Maitland, Experiment, Australia, Rapid and the miniature steamer Firefly to view the proceedings from the water. At midday, 50 guns were fired from Dawes Battery as the Royal Standard was raised and the evening rockets and other fireworks lit the sky. That dinner was a smaller affair than the previous year with only 40 in attendance compared to the 160 in attendance in 1837 and the anniversary as a whole was described as a day for everyone. The centenary celebration 1839-1935. Now prior to 1888, 26th of January was very much a New South Wales affair as each of the colonies had its own commemoration for its founding. In Tasmania, Regatta Day occurred initially in December to mark the anniversary of the landing of Abel Tasman. South Australia celebrated Proclamation Day on the 28th of December. Foundation Day for WA had its own day, now Western Australian Day, on the 1st of June. 
The decision to mark the occasion of the First Fleet's arrival in 1788 at Sydney Cove and Captain Arthur Phillips' proclamation of British sovereignty over the Eastern Continent on January 26 was made by the ANA, a group of white native-born middle-class men formed in Victorian late 1800s. By 1888, all colony capitals except Adelaide celebrated Anniversary Day. In 1910, South Australia adopted the 26th of January as Foundation Day to replace another holiday known as Accession Day, which had been held on the 22nd of January to mark the accession of the throne of King Edward VII, who died in 1910. The first Australia Day was established in response to Australia's involvement in World War I. In 1915, the mother of four servicemen thought up the idea of a national day with a specific aim of raising funds for wounded soldiers, and the term was coined to stir up patriotic feelings. A committee to celebrate Australia Day was formed. The date chosen then was the 30th of July, in which many fundraising efforts were run to support the war effort. It was also held in July in subsequent years of World War I in 1916, 17 and 18. And Victoria adopted 26th of January as Australia Day 1931. And by 1935, all states of Australia were celebrating the 26th of January as Australia Day, although it was still known as Anniversary Day in New South Wales. The name Foundation Day persisted in local usage. So however you've been celebrating Australia Day, happy Australia Day to you. hope it's a terrific day to reflect, respect, enjoy and really just reflect on what a fantastic country it is that we live. That's it for this week's show. We'll be back with a new episode next week. My name is Nikki Shea. Thanks so much for being part of the Road Less Travel podcast and I hope to catch you somewhere on the Road Less Travelled. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. This has been the Road Less Travelled, a podcast about travelling and camping on the road. Written and hosted by me, Nikki Shea, produced by Fat Cat Media. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, please leave a review. Any comments or questions, please email fatcat at iinet.net.au and to be notified on the new episodes, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Yeah.